Hello, and welcome to Writer's Group Therapy. I'm Tom. And I'm Roshni. We're writers helping writers with whatever writing ailments you might have. Whether it's related to your craft or your career, we can help. Are you ready for your session? The The doctors doctors are are in. in. Today, I have with me Nicholas Bruckman, the founder of People's Television, an award-winning studio in New York City and Washington, D.C. Nicholas is a director and producer who has created award-winning films, commercials, and web content for groups such as Greenpeace, Black Lives Matter, and TED, as in the TED Talks. Uh, His film, Valley of the Saints, won the Audience Award at Sundance, and most recently, his documentary, Not Going Quietly, was supposed to premiere at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2020. But we can probably guess what happened there. Uh, welcome to the show, Nicholas. Thanks, Tom. It's great to uh, be here and to chat with you. The film did premiere later on, but it, it took it uh, did <laughs> took another year. It was a delayed a delayed premiere. Well, that's really cool. Um, we can talk about that more in a little bit. You know, this uh, I wanted to interview Rashi and I were, were looking at uh, People's Television, uh, the website, and watching some of your trailers, and we thought, wow, this is really cool. This is some really good storytelling and a documentary level that, you know, we don't usually talk about. We usually talk about fiction and novels and things like that in films. So we were really interested to have you on. What drives you to want to do documentary filmmaking? Great question. I think that it's really relevant for me to be here and to be chatting about this because I really feel that documentary is a having a kind of uh, renaissance moment. I think just economically, there's been a lot more interest and attention and, and higher prices paid by streamers for documentary content. Obviously, that's coming from audiences. But I think there's also just been a bigger recognition of documentary as a valid medium of cinematic storytelling. Um, Mm -hmm. So much has happened, so much innovation and experimentation has happened with the medium. Um, And in some ways, that may seem obvious, but I'm, I'm struck sometimes by how much of a secluded um, offshoot we are often considered um, to the film industry. Uh, one example that I think really, really highlights it is that in the 70 plus years of the Oscars, no documentary has ever been nominated for a Best Picture or a Best Director award. Uh, animated films have, uh, for example, mm-hmm. um, which you might think are you know different or not quite the same as regular filmmaking. Uh, but documentary has not. So we have still not yet come into our own. I think it's still, and it's an exciting time to push the medium forward. Um, yeah. And re- relevant to the podcast, I mean, I think that writing is a huge part of documentary filmmaking. It's uh, equally a part of storytelling as writing is on a narrative film. Um, none of this is to say that I think documentary is a superior format or whatever competitive to narrative, but certainly we're sometimes competing for the same attention and interest and resources. That was, that's another question I had was, you know, I've, I've worked a little bit with documentaries. A friend of mine did one and I helped out producing it. And we discovered quickly that the story of a documentary almost, you know, you, you can't, it's, I guess the question is, how do you write a documentary? Usually the story comes out of the filming and you, you kind of construct it, I don't want to say in the process of, or after the fact. Um, how much planning do you do ahead of time when it comes to developing what your story is going to be? Right. So there's different types of documentary storytelling. Uh, the, not going quietly, the film that you referenced uh, that was supposed to yeah, premiere. Yeah, really amazing. The, yeah. 
Thank you. I just gotta say that was me. I saw the trailer, and it, I mean, just seeing the trailer really touched me. I was like, wow, this is really powerful stuff. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, and yeah. that film had a very character-driven, what we call like cinema verite storytelling style, which meant mm-hmm. we followed around Adi Barkin, the protagonist, for several years um, to tell his story as it unfolded. And there were uh, a lot of uh, twists and turns that we certainly couldn't have expected and couldn't have written in advance. And so you kind of write by filming and letting the, uh, and of course you you steer it in directions that you want it to go, not the person's life, but the way that the, the way you choose what to capture is to frame out what you think are gonna be the important beats, but you have to constantly be shifting and adapting to what the story is going to be. So you know when to be where. You can't obviously film somebody uh, 365, 24/7 yet, um, but we mm-hmm. almost did that without it. We filmed for for over 100 days on the on the film, which is really extensive um, over the course of those of those few years. And um, what uh, the writing process, which was very uh, long and intensive, was uh, between myself and my co-writer Amanda Roddy. Um, our editor Kent was also an additional writer on the film. And the three of us really took all of the interviews and all of the material that we had captured in this film over the course of that time. And we wrote it um, much in the way you would a Hollywood narrative screenplay. I think we took a lot of the um, kind of writing uh, tools and tricks and best practices and three act structural guide rails that um, a narrative script would have. And we applied those, except we did it in post-production. Um, right. Th- so you took the the pieces that you had and fit them into the puzzle that is the film structure. Exactly. And in fact, we and some of the pieces we didn't have and we ended up um, writing them and then recording them in post-production. This film had a really oh. unusual writing process because the protagonist, Adi, loses his voice entirely during the making of the film. And what was so notable about that, not, you know, from a, from a filmmaking standpoint, is normally when you're making a documentary, you know, you just always are interviewing people. You're always talking to them. You want to put different parts of those interviews in different parts of the film. Like, oh, this thing that we recorded recently, let's put that at the beginning of the film. We couldn't do that because Adi's voice had totally changed by the time we were done making the uh, film from the way he so sounded So it would definitely feel out of sequence then. Yes, exactly. It's one of the heartbreaking things about ALS, the disease that Adi mm-hmm. has and sets him on this mission to fix the American healthcare system. And so... We ultimately used a device, which was uh, literally a device, Adi's recorded um, computerized voice, which he gets during the film. In the third act of the film, he suddenly gets this new tool to speak with his eyes. Um, And we use that um, as the device to create the narration for the film that set up the beginning, middle, and third act of the the story, um, that bookended the kind of verite uh, materials Uh we didn't have. And... Um, that ended up being a really freeing device because we were ultimately able to write it um, the way you would write a voiceover script um, in our character's voice without that limitation um, oh, yeah, of him losing cool. his voice. It was kind of our our cheat code or, or workaround. Um, and it was great. And the film was, was really well recognized. It got a um, writing nomination from the International Documentary Association. Um, amongst other awards that it receives. So the fact that the IDA documentary group has a writing award category is um, indicative of how important the writing process is for documentaries. Cool. 
is that particular uh, film going to be anywhere to watch, like on streaming, or uh, or is it going to get theatrical? No, it or? is. It had it had a theatrical release in in um, August of twenty one, and it just oh. premiered on Hulu um, uh, two months ago. So, oh well, great. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I'll definitely check it out. And if you don't get Hulu, you can also uh, rent it on Amazon Prime. Gotcha. Cool. So, you know, Addy, um, you know, how did you find him? How do you find the subjects of all your various stories? How did those things come to you? Is it kind of like, like a epiphany in a moment? Like, wow, look at this thing. This is, this is a story we have to do. Yeah. I've only directed two feature documentaries and both of the times I've done that has been exactly what you described. I met somebody and I said, I want to set aside the next possibly two to three years of my life and dedicate them to telling this person's story. Um, that, you know, does not something that happens often. I know it's such a commitment to make a film like this. Um, the first time it was the story of an undocumented immigrant who had left her daughter behind in Bolivia. That was my first film called La Americana. Um, mm-hmm. And then this time it happened with Adi. And I met Adi, um, who is the protagonist of Not Going Quietly, the story of the film for folks who haven't seen it yet is he's a young father and activist who has his life in front of him when he's suddenly diagnosed with ALS. And he goes and realizes that his story might matter in Washington as the Trump administration is debating tax cuts that would cut into healthcare. And he gets on a plane to go to DC and on the way runs into Senator Jeff Blake, who at the time was the deciding vote on this bill on the plane. And he goes up and he confronts the Senator with his personal story and the woman next to him on the plane films it with her phone. And then the video wow. of this interaction goes viral and Adi becomes the national face of healthcare. And this video, this clip is on CNN and every other news outlet. And him and this woman who we just met set out on a tour across the country, um, fighting for healthcare, launched on the back of his newfound fame, all while he's losing his voice. Um, and it's really his, his last road trip. Um, of course, uh, he has a lot of great successes on the way. And, and even though ALS is a really devastating disease, Adi is still alive and still and still with us and still fighting the good fight that you see in the movie, um, which is really great. And he got to celebrate the premiere with us in Los Angeles when it opened theatrically at the at the Lemley, which was really an ah, amazing moment mm-hmm. um, to, to have that. I used to live near there. Oh, cool. Yeah, it was a I used well. to live in NoHo, right around the corner from there. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. It played, bo- it played in both. Uh, the Lemley in uh, Studio City, I think, and then the one in uh, in, Holly, in in Santa Monica. Um, if I'm cool. getting that right, um, yeah. My LA, my LA geography is not not perfect, <laughs> but um, but yeah, I met. So him. When, when did you when did you uh, find out about Addie, and when did you join the production? Like, was it before that flight? With yes, the, great, was that the great question? It was in, it was right after the flight. The woman who we ran into on the plane, whose name is Liz Jaff, who's kind of the co-protagonist and his partner in crime in the film, is a political consultant. And I had some friends in common with her from from the Obama campaign um, because she had previously worked on for, for, for the Obama campaign in 2008 and 2012. And the reason that she got in touch with me was because in addition to making independent feature films, of which I made three, two, two documentaries and one narrative, I also do all types of branded work, short form video for different political causes. Um, I do work for a lot of nonprofits, a lot of social justice movements and organizations and foundations and and government organizations through my production company, which is called Mm -hmm. People's Television. 
and she just wanted she wanted a (laughs) yeah uh, it's a name drop um she wanted a um short video to be made about this movement that her and this guy were launching and she said hey i just met this guy on a plane um we're going to start this national tour where we're going to promote healthcare." um and i thought okay that sounds like an interesting sort of nonprofit uh type type of uh uh story very sad of course um but you know agreed to do it kind of as a client job and then i flew out to meet adi and he was like the funniest, you know, most loudmouth cussing, um, you know, kind of self-deprecating uh, pothead, but like righteous, righteous activist um, with just this incredible story and sense of humor, despite being faced with this devastating diagnosis. And when they decided to actually get an old RV and hit the road, I knew there was much more to the story than just a short launch video. And so... I talked to him and and his and his wife and said, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna you know come along on this journey. Um, the prerequisite is that you know we're gonna do this our way and and it's gonna be independent and journalistic and observational." And um, he agreed, and and his his wife I think slightly more reluctantly agreed, and we um, got our own RV and followed <laughs> his uh, in our production RV on the road for about. Uh, 40 days through 22 states. Um, this is right in the lead up to the 2018 elections now. I can't believe uh, how much time has passed, but I think it's still really? very relevant. Um, that was the last midterm election. And now those those yeah. fights are happening again um, across the country. So it was a really transformative experience and really made all the more poignant by him losing his ability to walk and talk um, and making such a huge impact on the election at that time. And the film... Um, he's credited by by the Democrats and Nancy Pelosi, basically single-handedly for helping to win the election for Democrats in the midterms, which ultimately ends up setting the stage for um, a lot of the other important progressive victories, though few and far between, wow. that we've had since. Yeah. Actually, Roshni and I both come from like a print journalism background. I studied journalism in college. She was a actually a reporter. You know, and we were kind of taught never to like alter the subject to be, you know, very objective. But in a documentary, you spend so much time with the subject and, and through the editing process, you know, how do you how do you feel like, uh, you know, what about the journalistic integrity? Do you have a point of view in your editing? How is that different from how is it different is doc, doc, documentary filmmaking different from news, I guess? Oh, sure. Yeah. No, my thoughts are just evolving um, around this topic um as related to other projects that i'm working on right now i i don't think and i i you know i haven't ever worked in the news traditional news business so i certainly don't speak with any expertise on that but i don't think any kind of true objectivity is possible with documentary filmmaking and i um certainly share most of adi's politics and my sharing of them and wanting to give him a platform and elevate him was part of the reason to choose this subject. Um, At the same time, I was very insistent that he would not have any editorial approval or control over the film. I'm very um, insistent in my projects that um, with certain exceptions for very um, sort of specific reasons that uh, uh, folks usually should not be paid or compensated to be part of a documentary. Um, there's comp- a variety of nuance to that, but 
you want to make sure that there's not a conflict of interest in terms of their participation or what they're saying. Um, but really not giving your subjects control requires a huge amount of trust because why would you let somebody else open your life and the inconveniences of having a crew in your home as Adi did um, for so long. Mm -hmm. And that, so building that trust is really important to getting that release form signed that says somebody's going to um, have the control over how all of these images are put together. And uh, we were, I think the reason that Adi agreed was because he knew that an independent lens on him would do more to uplift his platform and his voice and his mission and his life than a hagiography that he controlled and would be a you know long commercial for his political movement that was what we didn't want to do and i think the reason we didn't want to do that was not for for journalistic credibility but really because actually doing something real um, where you show the warts and all of somebody and you don't let them be a saint. You know, you see Adi kind of getting high in the movie and, you know, uh, wrestling with whether he should be leaving his um, child for these long periods of time during his, during his illness and being very vulnerable in many ways. All of those things ultimately make the film better and therefore the advocacy more impactful. So I think I went into the mm -hmm. film knowing that I, I believed in this mission um, and didn't and didn't distance myself from it, but at the same time wanted to make the film that served audiences and not him. Um, and mm -hmm. keeping the audience perspective in mind and going in with skepticism was really important. Okay, so yeah, so you were you were able to put yourselves in the audience position of wanting to tell the story as truthfully as possible without you know letting the subject take control of it and drive that narrative. So you, you were, you know, definitely trying to be the observer, the journalistic side of it from that perspective. Exactly. And it was tough because look, this guy was, you know, um, we try not to use the word dying because we say Adi is living with ALS and he's still alive and, mm -hmm. and, he, and he could be with us for a very long time. It, this is discussed in the film as well, but there's somebody I care about a lot and is my friend. Um, and that always happens when making documentaries. So it's a really, it's a really nuanced topic. Um, mm -hmm. And that relationship between director and and subject, the word subject is, has been related to this conversation because a lot of people are saying now in the documentary industry that, you know, maybe the relationship between a subject uh, is not the is, is more futile than we'd want to have in this. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe we should think about people as participants or protagonists or collaborators mm -hmm. um, so that even that terminology speaks to some of the shifting thoughts. And, and a lot of people have a lot of great um explorations of of the issues you're raising around ethics and documentary that I um would look yeah. to for for guidance. You brought up the fact that you don't pay the subject for one, but on the other side of that, who pays you? You know, you spend 2 years of your life making a documentary film, there's a lot of expenses involved in it. There's a lot of, you know, travel, there's, you know, it, it costs money and then documentary films aren't always known for having great returns on their investment. So how, how does that work? And I guess that probably comes into play with, um, you know, getting into people's television a little bit. 
Yeah, yeah, that's really, you can't really talk about documentary filmmaking. Sorry, I'm in, I'm in Manhattan right now. Um, I'm like, yeah, I, where do you live? Yeah, <laughs> I, live in, uh, I live in the Washington Heights neighborhood of Manhattan, which is uh, not known for being particularly uh, serene. They're having a party. <laughs> I know. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll start over, which is um, to say that um, you can't really talk about, for any filmmakers in the audience, I don't think it's really worth having a, panel or discussion about um, documentary filmmaking without really talking about the economics and finance of it, which which is um, difficult. I, I don't think it's getting any easier necessarily, despite the market uptick, um, especially for kind of independent, long-form risk-taking stories like this one. Um, we uh, did, were able to secure some grants uh, for the film. Um, from the International Documentary Association I mentioned earlier, as well as from uh, Rooftop Films and a number of other organizations that supported us. We were also able to set up fiscal sponsorship for the film, which is like a nonprofit umbrella that can accept mm -hmm. charitable contributions for the film. This is a really important tool, I think, for most um, independent artists and documentary filmmakers who want to accept contributions rather than investment. Um, and we uh, also ended up partnering with the Duplass Brothers, uh, Duplass Brothers Productions, um, who gave us a um, equity investment into the film, which allowed us to complete production. Um, but as you pointed out, kind of scraping all of that together was complicated. We had to do it at the same time as making the film, um, which meant that our, our you know, cash flow was often negative during it. And mm -hmm. um, I, uh, you mentioned the production company. I was very fortunate. I was in a very fortunate position that that the production company was able to put some investment into the film themselves. And not every independent filmmaker has that kind of resource or backing. Um, mm -hmm. So I think um, you know, and yeah, that money, uh, those monies have to be paid back um, from an investment standpoint. And uh, we were able to sell the film to a couple of different buyers to. Um, to PBS for broadcast, um, to Vice for the international rights who streamed it outside of the US. Um, the international rights are actually very important and lucrative for a documentary that might have international angles to it. Um, mm -hmm. And um, ultimately to Hulu um, in the US and, and recoup most of uh, what we put in, but um, it was tough slog. And my perspective on this, which I think is not the same for other um, filmmakers, is to really have one foot into the branded world where I'm doing the kind of social impact storytelling that I care about working with the kinds of organizations that you mentioned in my bio, um, because it's a way for me to have kind of a, a sustainable, steady, um, reliable um, kind of income stream to make, to do storytelling that matters and to collaborate. Um, with other filmmakers uh, without my income being totally dependent on just being a documentary director, which I think, you know, you can do it, but it's like getting into the NBA, you know, it's gotta be, um, it's gotta be, be Warner Herzog or, <laughs> exactly. or Al Gore or something like that. Exactly. Or a lot, you know, a dozen or two other, and everybody has their own path um, to making it. And the narrative industry is no different. It's just, it's less likely in documentary that you get, you make your one feature and then, you know, suddenly you're, you're doing the next Jurassic Park or whatever, <laughs> um, which, yeah. can, which can happen, you know, and again, but that's, that's tough on the narrative side too. So I, um, everybody's got their own path. And I think this question you're asking about sustainable careers and documentary is a, 
is a much longer and different topic and maybe we're getting too far away from the writing <laughs> of it all. But um, yeah. you know, one thing I advocate for is just for people to really have a craft other than directing or a craft that is marketable that can allow you to sustain yourself and a craft that is within the industry. Right. So, you know, can you all, if you want to direct, can you also edit, you know, um, because I mm -hmm. think, um, editing is, is, is just such a important prerequisite to directing, to knowing what you want on set, um, whether for narrative or documentary. And it's such a high demand skill. It's so hard to find documentary mm -hmm. editors these days. They're getting paid $5,000 a week easily. Um, wow. you know, so if you can for, for good ones. So if, um, you can have that skill and, and cut your teeth doing that and have a great fallback, that's going to give you the, the skills, the training, instead of kind of trying to come straight out and, and just direct your magnum opus. It's just something that I, I speak a lot at schools, um, mm -hmm. and am often engaged in these questions around how to, how to do it. And for me, it's been really doing a lot of commercial work, but commercial work for organizations that I, that I care about. But your commercial work is also, in, in, a, in a lot of ways, like many documentaries in some cases, you know, or, or they're nonfiction, you know, productions. To yeah, say it's the true. Least. It's true. We do yeah. some kind of more standard commercials, um, but our sweet spot at People's TV is doing the, this type of um, um, kind of nonfiction branded storytelling um, that shows the real people and the real impact um, in on a variety of topics, criminal justice, environmental issues. It's a really powerful method to engage people. It's a medium that people consume, I think, more than the written word. And obviously, um, people are just looking at videos all day on their phones. And the, the, certainly the taste and the medium is is changing a lot in terms of vertical video and and TikTok being the dominant media consumption habits these days. But I think that um, brands, nonprofits really need good stories told if they're going to advance their yeah. causes. So that's kind of a niche that we found at the company and, and we're doing well with that. How long has People's Television been been in business? So I formed it in, in as a company in, in 2011, but it really was just me back then. Um, I was, I don't know, 20 six years old, I think, and um, didn't, you know, was kind of at the place where I'm describing for others of kind of, you know, using my craft and, and freelancing so that I could try to get my films made. Um, but then over time, I was able to attract bigger clients, find great people to work with and partner with, including our, our creative director, Ryder Hask, who runs our DC office, um, and was also the cinematographer on Not Going Quietly. And um, the um, you know, result today has been really great. We now have 21 people on the team across two offices. Um, and so for me now, it's a lot about finding the balance between um, running the business and, and supporting those stories and the filmmakers on our team while also telling the stories I want to tell. And I'm currently, um, you know, in production on two different feature doc projects. So um, mm -hmm. bouncing, bouncing those different efforts. Yeah. Do you see yourself getting into any uh, of the campaigning coming up in the next couple of years? That is a good question. Do you mean campaigning, like doing political ads, or well, that or 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 documenting it? It's you know some the politics of today is some of the most intriguing in our history. Yes, I agree. I mean, I the thing about the audience uh, about not going quietly is I think it's a very hopeful look. It is a very political story, um, and it's a very hopeful look at what 
a small group of concerned citizens can do as the famous Margaret Mead quote says. Mm -hmm. But I also look at a lot of political stories going on and find them to be, um, you know, uh, less hopeful. And um, yeah. I think most people, when they, even when they hear about not going quietly, they think like, oh, that sounds like a bummer. Like he's got ALS. Like, I don't know if I want to watch that. But I think if you do actually tune into it, um, you'll see it's full of a ton of uplift and even has a happy ending, uh, which I won't spoil here, um, that I think is the kind of thing that makes people galvanized um, and want to take action as opposed to just, just being kind of angry at, at the many, many injustices yeah. all around us. So um, yeah, if I found that right kind of um, story of, of uplift, you know, something that you actually want to watch. I think that's tricky with documentary, right? It's like, there's people interestingly want to watch true crime, right? Which is about as dark as it gets. Mm -hmm. And that's something people, you know, engage with. Um, and then at the other end, I think people want to feel um, good. They have difficult yeah. lives and, uh, you know, difficult work and inflation and the economy and you just get home from work and you turn on Netflix. Are you going to watch mm -hmm. my documentary about healthcare? Like, yes, <laughs> but only if it's, you know, going to make you feel, feel good and inspired. And so I, yeah. I want to do stories that do that. What do you have to say for the uh, aspiring documentary uh, filmmaker out there? Any advice, any uh, suggestions for how to get started? Well, I mentioned already the um, importance of finding a marketable craft within the documentary industry. Um, and that I think is really, is really key. Um, there's um, a lot of opportunity. The, the, the medium in general is booming and there's just a huge need for every level of post-production craft. I mean, there's just a, like I said, editors are in huge demand, colorists, sound, uh, you know, sound mixers. Um, there's need for writers on, on documentaries as well. And in the production side, same. I mean, learn to get um, to be a great DP or, or a great sound recordist. There's a lot of great directors who record the sound um, and have a DP as opposed to the traditional um, shooter director that, that people might think of. So I think it's really important not to obsess about the tools, but to learn the protocols and, 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 and the operations of set and post environments. And the important thing about that, probably the most important thing about that, is you're going to find your people. You're going to find your collaborators in that way. And documentary is just absolutely a team sport. Um, there's, you know, long list of credits on Not Going Quietly from my producer, Amanda, to the editor, Kent, to the whole list of um, cinematographers that, that work closely on it. Um, and yeah, you need to find people that you're going to want to be in a room with for those couple of years that some of these projects mm -hmm. take, and that's not an easy task. And so that networking and that team building and that camaraderie and finding that network is just um, the most critical thing to having any success in the industry. Cool, cool. If people want to learn more uh, or want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, my, my DMs are open on Twitter and Instagram. Um, it is uh, Nick underscore Bruckman on Twitter, uh, Nicholas Bruckman on Instagram. And um, you can check out more at peoples.tv, P-E-O-P-L-E-S.tv for the production company. And um, not going yeah, quietly. Don't forget film. The, yeah, don't forget the S on the peoples because if you go people TV, you wind up pe like people magazines. So. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> peoples.tv. 
Um, and um, yeah, I would love for people to check out Not Going Quietly um, on Hulu. Uh, it's at notgoingquietlyfilm.com where you can just uh, uh, type it in wherever movies flow. Awesome. Thanks so much for spending some time with us. It was really great to hear about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm going to go to Hulu and watch the, the full documentary of uh, uh, Not Going Quietly. So that's going to be, I'm really looking forward to that. So. Absolutely. All right. Well, keep Let us me informed of what, you what you're doing. Yeah, I will. Keep us informed of what you're doing. If you got anything new coming up, uh, we'd love to have you back. 